Okay, so uh, Turkish and Chinese banks have halted operations with Russia due to U.S. sanctions on Russia. These are now secondary sanctions uh, related to Executive Decree 14114, which uh, essentially boosts the U.S. Treasury's ability to sanction non-U.S. companies for doing any kind of business that could be part of the supply chain leading to the um, in feeding into Russia's defense industry. And at the same time, uh, Russia is now struggling with its uh, with its oil market. I saw that uh, one of its biggest companies, Luke Oil, had a shutdown, had technological shutdown at its uh, Nizhny Novgorod refinery, which uh, I think they're down by 50%. And that refinery produces 10% of Russia's gasoline. And part of the reason they couldn't get back online was because they they had these catalytic cracking units that they couldn't repair because of sanctions. Russia is really feeling the impact of these sanctions. That's just to set up the landscape, I guess, of the last week. But with regard to the sanctions, what beyond this or including this, what kind of impact have these sanctions had? And would you say that the sanctions are effective? Yes. So I would say that the sanctions, in fact, have been effective. Um, one interesting report that came out, uh, a blog post that came out of the U.S. Treasury in December, was a summary of the effects of the sanctions on Russia, on, on the Russian economy. So certainly um, the U.S. Treasury pointed to the fact that Russia's economies, its growth estimates um, are have not hit pre-invasion targets. Um, there's been a decline in imports and exports, though not directly linked to the sanctions. The U.S. Treasury did note the, the instability in Russia's currency. Um, and certainly I think the longer term effects have the capability to be even greater. Right. I think that export controls and uh, certainly restrictions on new investment, both legal restrictions and voluntary uh, reductions in investment, will have great long term potential to reduce the level of technology going into Russian industry, as well as the funds available to invest in Russian industry as well. In, in your book, you describe not not only um the type of sanctions that I laid out in the beginning with regard to oil, but also the impact on food, fertilizer, the financial system. Could you walk through a few examples of how these are uh, impacting those different areas? Certainly. So with respect to the financial system, there were deplatforming of certain Russian financial institutions from SWIFT. SWIFT is the messaging uh, system that helps enable many cross-border financial transactions against the world. And so the removal of banks from that platform uh, removed a convenient way for Russian financial institutions to engage in cross-border transactions. There were also full blocking sanctions and some correspondent account sanctions placed on Russian banks. Correspondent account sanctions um, reduce the ability or take away the ability of those banks to transact with correspondent or use correspondent accounts in the sanctioning countries, for example, to transact business in the US dollar or the euro or whatever the currency is, the sanctioning country. Um, and full, some of those correspondent account sanctions were later upgraded to full blocking sanctions and some other Russian financial institutions were made subject to full blocking sanctions as well, which prohibits all transactions between parties in or nationals of a sanctioning nation and those sanctioned financial institutions, which is a, a pretty, it's a, it's a, it's a near total block on transactions with 
those particular financial institutions. Um, so the effect of those sanctions is that it's certainly frozen billions of dollars of the Russian Central Bank and the Russian National Wealth Fund and also reduced their ability to transact on behalf of their customers um, with parties in the sanctioning nations as well. Uh, with respect to food and fertilizer, um, the sanctions actually do not prohibit trade in food and fertilizer. There is carve outs for those particular items, but uh, certainly the trade in food and fertilizer faces the issue of overcompliance, where, where you have a particularly heavily sanctioned jurisdiction such as Russia, which isn't subject to comprehensive jurisdictions in the sense that there's not a blanket ban on all business with Russia, but rather um, many targets are individually uh, sanctioned, right, where those targets are great in number, certainly um, parties may choose uh, when they're from the sanctioning nations not to do business in food or fertilizer um, because of the presence of sanctions and, and uh, desire to reduce risk, even where that sort of trade is permitted. So it's something that the sanctioning nations really have sought to address by clarifying the scope of the exemptions, publicizing the scope of the exemptions. Um, and also the trade in food and fertilizer also suffers from uh, pressures as pressures from Russia as well. Russia's withdrawal from the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which would have provided a safe passage for grain shipments. Um, Russia ended its participation um, in that arrangement as well. In your book, you also discuss that the way in which this is not uh, simply a U.S. effort, but that this is an internationally coordinated effort. So how is this multinational approach key to the effectiveness of the sanctions? And what are some of the challenges involved in achieving this level of coordination? Um, so yes, these sanctions are very notable. They're coordinated outside of the United Nations. Russia has um, veto power in the UN Security Council. And so sanctions were not imposed through the Security Council, even though the UN Security Council does have a number of sanctions regimes. Um, they weren't able to impose them in this instance. So the US, the UK, um, Australia, Canada, Japan, South Korea, uh, the EU, um, and a host of other jurisdictions joined together to really uh, work to coordinate the sanctions that they imposed against Russia. And it was extraordinary that it was done in such a short time after the invasion of Russia or invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. And there have been continuing rounds of sanctions ever since. Um, so one challenge that the sanctioning powers have faced is that um, they are differently situated with respect to their reliance on Russia. One notable aspect was the EU's reliance on Russian energy supplies, right, is certainly quite different from that of example, that of the U.S., for example, which is not uh, reliant on Russian energy. And so the EU's ban on crude imports of crude oil into its borders um, came later than that of the U.S., for example. But the EU, recognizing the importance that such a measure would have to the sanctions package, did in fact enact that ban along with the price cap uh, enacted by G7 countries. And another aspect that is that challenges the coordinated sanctions regime is the fact that many countries around the world have not 
joined in the sanctions response. For example, many countries in South America, South America and Africa um, have decided not to join in the sanctions response against Russia. So while the coordinated sanctions powers are trying to isolate Russia and the global economy as much as possible, um, that necessarily is limited by the fact that many countries and also major powers such as China and India have not joined in the sanctions response. So the sanctions cannot isolate Russia completely because it still has major trading partners. Do you think that the nations that have decided not to join in, uh, non-sanctioning nations like China, India being, I think, the big ones, and others, uh, that this is going to lead to a subsequent shift in global alliances when we see, you know, okay, you guys are on that side. So you weren't you on our team when we were fighting this fight. I think it's possible, right? And I think the political question is a longer term one, but certainly in the short term, we've seen a shift in economic relationship. We've seen greater trade between Russia and China. We have seen a growth in uh, the Chinese payment system, right, by Russian um, entities seeking instead of transacting with parties from the sanctioning nations through those financial networks maintained by sanctioning nations, they turn to the Chinese payment system. And so we've seen growth there as well. So I think certainly we see a deepening of economic relationships and a shift in trade patterns in that way. So I think the economic piece certainly is there. So when you say they've shifted to the Chinese system, would this be an acceleration of de-dollarization? And is that is Certainly. that one of the results of the sanctions on Russia? And if so, uh, what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, so I think that this does, um, to some extent, accelerate trends of de-dollarization or encourage trends of de-dollarization in the sense that Russia now has a compelling reason to, for example, denominate trade in the Chinese currency rather than in dollars or the euro, especially when transacting with Chinese counterparties. So I don't think that de-dollarization is solely driven by sanctions. I think that the rise of the Chinese currency is also due to the growing importance of China in the prior decades um, to the world economy. I think that sanctions provide um, an impetus to de-dollarization, but I also don't think that de-dollarization, um, right, that we will not have complete de-dollarization as a result of the sanctions um, or likely anything else in the short term, um, because the U.S. dollar remains a very common trading currency, uh, a common reserve currency. The euro also is is quite prominent in world trade. Um, and so I think that it is it accelerates existing trends of de-dollarization. It provides an additional impetus, but certainly it does not, the world will not de-dollarize completely or even to a, a dramatic extent in the short mm. term, I would say. Mm. Would it be fair to say that in many countries, even in many of the African countries that you mentioned that are uh, that are non-sanctioning, that when small business owners go to the local bank, the currency that's going to be most available is going to be the U.S. dollar more than renminbi, for instance. I I, I likely would not be able to speak to that. I'd, it would depend on the um, the particular location, but hmm. uh, I'm I, I'm not quite sure. Hmm. Can you describe the difference of effectiveness between sanctions of the type that we've been discussing and those that 
target specific individuals, oligarchs? So I think that the different types of sanctions have different purposes, right? And so the financial sanctions, their their goal is to um, isolate R- Russia in a systemic way within the world financial system, whereas the sanctions on oligarchs are different in that they are intended to um, exert political pressure on the oligarchs um, to the extent they have any ability to influence Putin or to influence war policy, which it's not entirely clear that they do or that these sanctions um, would achieve and would be successful in achieving such a dramatic result. I think the point of the sanctions is also to uh, reduce the resources available to Russia to wage war and to the extent that oligarchs are a basis of support for Putin, um, the sanctions are similar to the financial sanctions in that way. The financial sanctions reduce, uh, for example, resources available to the Russian Central Bank. The sanctions against oligarchs uh, freeze assets held in sanctioning countries. And so I think that they're similar in that way. I think the sanctions against oligarchs are some of the most uh, publicly noticeable sanctions with the seizures of yachts and so forth. Um, They certainly have uh, served Right, they they've been very publicly noticeable, and so uh, that's how I would differentiate the various sanctions. Going back a second to the ways in which non-sanctioning nations are allying, do you think that there are any other patterns that that are going to evolve from this, or or from future use of sanctions? We're going to have different sort of trading or financial patterns that might be emerging as a consequence. I think that the trade in energy is very interesting. I think we've certainly seen um, the supply of energy from Russia to, for example, India for refinement. I think that that's something that we'll continue to see in the future. Um, I think that, uh, again, we're seeing these these shifts in trade patterns where Russia is moving more towards non-sanctioning nations. And I think as the sanctions remain in place, and indeed as um, they continue to be tightened, we see increasingly those economic relationships. Do you think that sanctions are being used more often by states and are have become more uh, effective because they've become more sophisticated or more targeted? Well, I think it's an interesting question because I think um, in prior decades, what we see more of are comprehensive sanctions regimes. So sanctions regimes that are um, targeted at an entire geographic area. For example, with respect to Iraq, there was a comprehensive sanctions regime. And so there certainly was the concern, the justified concern that these comprehensive sanctions regimes, really because of their very broad nature, um, triggered really disastrous humanitarian consequences. Um, so we have targeted sanctions. We have a we have a larger number of individual sanctions because sanctions are now increasingly targeted in number. They're placed on individuals and entities um, in an attempt to uh, enact sanctions without uh, perhaps triggering the the broadest of the humanitarian consequences. Um, And I think also the question depends on which user of sanctions we're looking at, right? So I think the United States has historically been, um, right, the the power in the world that has 
enacted the most sanctions, that uh, has enacted the most unilateral sanctions, right, outside of the United Nations Security Council. Um, but we do see in this round of sanctions incre an increasing number of sanctions from the EU, which historically, as with respect to the sanctions against Iran, um, has not always enacted the widest sanctions or the, the broadest sanctions as the United States has. It's been more restrained in its use of sanctions. It's more concerned about sanctions being applied extraterritorially. Um, and so I think one thing that's notable about this round of sanctions is we really see the EU as an equal partner and a leader in the sanctioning effort, right? So it's, it's unilateral, right? Sanctions outside of the UN Security Council that the EU is, um, is leading. Right, it, it's a leader in this area, and so I think that's something that's notable about the sanctions against Russia, certainly. So sanctions have gotten narrower and more focused, primarily. I, I, what I'm hearing is as a way to avoid hitting targets you don't want to hit. Have they also become narrower and sharper in the sense of hitting the targets that you do want to hit more effectively? It's it's the 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 reason why they are targeted is to avoid these disastrous humanitarian consequences. I think the narrower that sanctions are targeted, the argument is perhaps there's more opportunity for sanctions evasion or more opportunity for certain for these these sanctioned parties to find a way around these sanctions. However, given the the nature of comprehensive sanctions and how severe they are, um, the U.S., the EU, and others um, really have enacted these targeted sanctions to try to address those problems. And what's notable about the sanctions against Russia is that they are technically speaking targeted sanctions, another term for them is smart sanctions, but there are, there are many of them, right? There are many, many uh, individual sanctions against individuals, against companies. There are sanctions against sectors of the Russian industry. There are export controls. And so um, these are certainly voluminous. Um, it's not a comprehensive sanctions regime, but there are many, many sanctions in place. So then if the risk is that they could possibly get around it, have there been any notable cases of Russia getting around sanctions in certain ways uh, since since February 2022? Yeah, so I think that that is um, something that the sanctioning powers have really been trying to address um, the issue of enforcement, right? I think the sanctions, right, they were implemented and now we're in this phase of additional sanctions are being implemented, but enforcement is very much a key concern. And it comes not so much from the nature of these sanctions as targeted, but I would say also as a result of the fact that there are countries who are non-sanctioning nations as well. And so part of the recent executive order on sanctioning foreign financial institutions who may support Russia's military industrial bases to try to address this problem, right, to try to use the threat of sanctions on foreign financial institutions um, to make the existing sanctions more uh, effective. There are enforcement efforts in place to detect sanctions violations and to address those. And one big issue that the sanctioning powers have been trying to address is the issue of transshipment, uh, where goods go to third party or go to certain locations, for example, the UAE, 
and then are shipped on to Russia, right? So they, sanctioning powers have been trying to identify these um, trans shippers who will obtain goods oftentimes from the sanctioning nations themselves, and then those goods eventually end up in Russia. So that's something that the sanctioning powers indeed have, have been trying to address. Are we able to track how effectively or what impact the sanctions have actually had on Russia's ability to prosecute the war in Ukraine? Well, I think it's complicated by the fact that Russia certainly is putting in, right, they're diverting resources to the industrial sector. And so they are able to maintain and ramp up military production. Um, However, we have observed in Russia significant inflation um, as a result of this increased production. I know there was a recent article about the increased price of eggs, one example of um, a food product that has faced significant inflation within Russia, right? It's, 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 there's also the, um, the fact that Russian Central Bank and the National Wealth Fund are not able to access the billions of dollars that they would otherwise have, right? That's held in the sanctioning nations and that's now frozen. Um, and so I think that the question is not so much, is this something that we've necessarily, right, seen Russia not being able to produce military goods, Russia not being able to carry out the war, but more of a question of the counterfactual of, well, what, what greater resources would Russia have if the sanctions hadn't been imposed? Right there, I would certainly say that their production would right. They 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 would there would be less pressure on the the economy overall um, had these sanctions not been imposed. Uh, what would be your response to those who say that the sanctions ultimately failed in their arguably primary task of of either halting the Russian economy or getting Russia to either pull out of Ukraine or not go into Ukraine in the first place? I would say that with respect to the sanctions that were imposed after Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, I would say that sanctions are not a perfect substitute for military action. And they cannot be expected to achieve that which you might imagine direct military action would. I would say that the evidence shows that sanctions are particularly bad at triggering regime change, for instance. But what sanctions do do very well is they freeze assets, um, they help reduce um, exports of technology, um, in this case to Russian military end users. They keep the sanctioning nations from directly funding an invasion of Ukraine. And what they can do is it's, it's not realistic to expect that they can halt an invasion. It's not realistic to expect they would topple Putin. It's not realistic to expect that they would immediately trigger um, a collapse of Russia's economy. But what you do see is you see a decline in trade. You see inflation. You see a freezing of these assets. You see goals which one can realistically expect sanctions to achieve, right? I think that sanctions are an inherently limited tool, but that doesn't mean that they're not worth enacting because 
the right, I, I don't, right, the sanctioning nations don't want to engage in direct military action in Ukraine, right? And so I think that this is the next best option. Mm -hmm. I think certainly tools like military aid are also critically important. I don't think sanctions are the only tool um, in the arsenal. And I think military aid is also deeply important. But I think that this is, these are helpful for the goals which they can realistically achieve. So do you see sanctions as an aspect of warfare rather than something that will or or an alternative or both i suppose yeah i think that economic warfare is a middle ground to direct military action i think it's a response to russia to this violation of territorial integrity um i think that it's not realistic right and it's it's the sanctioning nations it's not realistic to expect the sanctioning nations and it's not is something that the sanctioning nations would want to do to sit by, watch Russia invade Ukraine and do nothing while continuing to directly fund this violation of international law, right? Their adherence to the rule of law and to, to the principles of international law, right? I think that the, the symbolic importance of the sanctions is important. And I also think that it is important economically speaking to reduce the rushes available to resources available to Russia, to sap its economic strength, to do what's possible um, short of direct military action to support the Ukrainians in this way. Do you think that promoting financial transparency globally uh, has a positive impact on the ability to deploy sanctions? Certainly. So financial transparency is helpful in a whole variety of ways um, for detecting and uncovering and addressing financial crime. But it's also very helpful specifically with respect to economic sanctions, um, because one of the way that economic sanctions can be evaded is if sanctioned parties enter into transactions where the fact that they're involved in the transaction is hidden from perhaps another transacting party, but certainly the government that has enacted sanctions. And so financial transparency makes it harder for these parties to engage in sanctions violations because it makes it clearer to other parties who they're transacting with. Um, it gives the government a way to detect uh, when these parties are entering into sanctions or entering into transactions which they're not authorized to do. Um, and it reveals the source of funds to the public um, oftentimes as well. So financial transparency certainly is worthwhile for a whole variety of reasons, one of which is economic sanctions enforcement. How do we get nations to pursue greater financial transparency when often the ones that we would be applying the sanctions to would be nations that are not inclined to financial transparency in the first place? I think one thing that we've seen um, both pre and post invasion is a move by sanctioning nations as well to increase financial transparencies. So certainly it does not address the entire issue in the sense that there are jurisdictions, right, that uh, have lesser degrees of financial transparency, and this does not address that issue. I think it's certainly um, a worthwhile starting point. Um, I think there are international mechanisms like the Financial Action Task Force that can help promote these goals and have been working to help promote these goals. Um, and I think so it's a, uh, it is, it will be a joint effort. It has been and will continue to be a joint effort between 
international cooperation as through the FATF and domestic action to implement financial transparency measures within uh, individual nations or borders. Do you think that the that there are any policies that are lacking right now in the legal structure of the United States that prevents us from uh, from enacting sanctions to the best of our ability? I think that the hurdles are perhaps more policy than legal okay. based. Um, I think that the question of secondary sanctions is an interesting one, and we've definitely seen perhaps more of a move towards secondary sanctions. And I think that's something we're going to see. Can you explain more that term of. for listeners? Primary sanctions are placed, for example, on targets uh, within Russia. They can be placed on other targets as well, but generally they are directly linked to the um, actions that the sanctions are trying to address. So, for example, the sanctions on Russian financial institutions were primary sanctions. Um, secondary sanctions are placed on parties for their support, primarily sanctioned targets. So, for example, we have, if if, if parties um, in third-party nations are sanctioned based on their support of sanctioned Russian targets, even when their behavior isn't uh, prohibited under sanctions regulations or the sanctions regulations of their own countries, they may themselves become subject to sanctions and themselves sanctioned targets as a result of that support. Um, and so the EU uh, historically has not used secondary sanctions certainly as much to as the United States has. And I think that it will be interesting to see in the future as the US and the EU move together in this coordinated sanctions effort, along with the other sanctioning nations, um, I think we'll see an increased use of secondary sanctions. And I think that we'll see increasingly the EU using tools which are more expansive than those which historically they used for uh, sanctions. And as we as we work together uh, deploying sanctions, do you think this will create a new sort of diplomatic alliance based on having this be part of our response, even more so in the future? I do. I do think so. And I think one thing that we see as a result of these sanctions is that in the past and in recent years, I think that sanctions have been a source of contention between the U.S. and the EU, particularly with respect to Iran the U.S.'s withdrawal from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, right? I think it certainly has been a source of disagreement between the EU and the U.S. But now, with respect to the sanctions against Russia, we certainly see a joint effort between these two jurisdictions. We see them moving together to coordinate on implementation and enforcement of sanctions measures. And so I think we see sanctions here as um, a... Uh, something which, which strengthens the diplomatic ties between these jurisdictions rather than undermining them. Hmm. What would be some of the uh, historical inflection points that come to your mind as being particularly important or interesting? Perhaps the Iran deal would be one and maybe Russia's invasion in 2022 would be another one because maybe it shifts, it, it, it indicates a shift toward more coordinated diplomatic application of sanctions. But Historically speaking, do any other moments stand out? Certainly. I see the the Russian invasion of Crimea, right, uh, the earlier Russian invasion of Crimea as being perhaps 
well, certainly a, a warning sign of what was to come. And also perhaps the first of the sanctions response, right? The, the comprehensive sanctions that were enacted with respect to Crimea. We see um, earlier sanctions against certain Russian sectors. Um, and certainly we see a growth in various sectors against Russia or and certain a growth in various sanctions against Russian targets um, in the years leading up to 2022 for a whole variety of reasons, including cyber attacks and interference in the U.S. presidential election. Um, but I think that certainly Crimea was uh, a, a definite moment in time which signaled what was to come in 2022. Are there any of the categories of sanctions that you think are seem to your judgment to be more effective or more easy to apply or others that are more challenging or complicated or whatever? Yeah, so I think that um, export controls, which technically aren't sanctions, they are restrictions on goods from sanctioning nations or from export controlling nations going to uh, certain end users in Russia, like the Russian military. Um, and certain types of items from going um, to Russia. Um, I think that export controls pose an interesting challenge to enforcement because of this issue of transshipment, which we have seen, right? And I think it's interesting in terms of the fact that physical items, once they leave a country, right, and are rerouted elsewhere, it's, it's oftentimes there's um, little visibility about where they go once they have left the country and they've ended up with an end user in one third party nation, and then they're eventually rooted elsewhere to their ultimate end user. I think that's a particularly interesting enforcement challenge. Um, and I think it also is particularly interesting in terms of equipment or components that end up being used by the Russian military. And I think that's certainly a priority for enforcement moving forward. And I think that's something that um, the sanctioning nations are going to pay a particular particular attention to trying to address in the future, as they have been since they were enacted as well. What got you into the subject? So I practiced in international trade and sanctions for almost four years before I moved into academia. I teach at New England Law, and I teach international business transactions. So I definitely teach about export controls and sanctions, um, and so. Uh, my practice area, and then also now my research and teaching, they play a significant, uh, sanctions and export controls play a significant role. For the readers who pick up your book, what is it that you that you really hope that you're able to communicate to them if they're taking away just one or two things? If this, is, if this book is essentially a, your classroom, what is it that you're hoping that they learn from it, if nothing else? Yeah, so I hope they are able to understand and appreciate the really historic nature and the extent of coordination among jurisdictions that the sanctions response involved. And I also want to convey the fact that sanctions are not military actions. Sanctions cannot achieve by themselves a halt to the invasion. They can't achieve withdrawal of Russia from Ukraine. But what they can do is reduce the resources available to Russia to wage war, freeze assets held in the sanctioning nations, reduce trade with sanctioning nations, all these things sanctions can, in fact, do. Mm, so we shouldn't be unrealistic about the scope of their capabilities, but nevertheless, it's quite inspiring that they represent a kind of democratic, a coordination of democratic nations to to oppose tyranny. Yes, certainly. I, uh, I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you so much for answering my questions. 
Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you.